operating there. And uh, it is Exodus chapter 35, reading verses 29 to 35. And you'll find that on page 95 from the Bibles in the seats there. So the reading is Exodus chapter 35, reading verses 29 to 35. <clears throat> All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Then Moses said to the Israelites, see, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Eri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. And he has given both him and Oholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in pur blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Just in time. Let's pray. <laughs> Our gracious Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us, help us to understand, help us to, underneath it, recognize who we are and change. We pray that you would encourage us. We ask that you would instruct, instruct us, strengthen us, and make us more like Jesus and keep me from error, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I had no idea we were up to. Yeah, I, had, I, was just, I was just pulling out the order, thinking, now, where is that reading? <laughs> and, and I walked in and I looked and thought, guess what? It's me. Yeah. With the passing of the Queen, we've lost a treasured monarch. Uh, she, I think, is someone who has provided great stability and leadership in our world. I'm not sure I always appreciated that, but I came to. I've suddenly realised, and, and you probably realise, that not, not everyone thinks that. Even last night, uh, this morning actually, I noticed there were uh, certain football fans from certain nations singing songs they're actually rejoicing in the fact that the Queen had died. Not everyone recognises majesty. It is a truth and it's here and it happens. People also don't like God's majesty. They don't like God's holiness. And Exodus has brought us 
really into the presence of that problem, hasn't it? How does a holy God live with the people, with his people? How does the perfect God live, inhabit the same space as a fallen people? God provides the answer, part of the answer, in the tabernacle. Uh, As we come to the end of Exodus, we realise that uh, God has been reaching out to a people who have often been characterised by grumbling, by faithlessness, by complaining, and everything but you might think they should have. But we hear here how God has reached out and how he will go forward with them. Firstly, he uh, at the close of the instructions uh, here in Exodus 35, verses 1 to 3. By the way, we're doing from Exodus 35 through to 40. So as you see, we've read a bit, only a little bit, and I'll be all over that bit. And every now and then I'll say something from somewhere else. So if you have your Bible, you would be it would be helpful because you can say, Keith, you've got that wrong. So that's important. So please don't trust me, trust the word. But here, in the actual building of the tabernacle in Exodus 31, we talked 35, sorry, verse 1 to 3, there's a reminder of where they're coming. They're coming into rest. They're coming into God's Sabbath. Exodus 35, verses 1 to 3 You see, it's a place where they are meant to be, and it's very, very serious. Exodus 35 verse 2 makes it plain it's a non-negotiable, and if you want to read how non-negotiable it is, read Exodus 35 verse 2. It's after the golden calf, after Israel's fall. Remember we said last week that in the making of the the tabernacle in its design, And in the way that Moses and the writer wants you to hear it, it wants wants you to hear this as God doing a creation event, a creation where he can be with his people. Just as Genesis 1 to 3, 1 to 2, we see God is in the presence and walks in the same space, in the same garden, humanity His people live with him. But after the fall, they lose that privilege and they aren't allowed back in there. And from from there on, the problem will be, how does a holy God live with a people who are all over the place, who are sinners? Here in the tabernacle, that was going well until the creation event, until the fall which was the golden calf here, and when the same problem happens again. And so God wants to remind them and tells them in no certain terms that they are entering that seventh day, God's rest. What is God's rest is always a good question. One bad answer, because it's my answer, is it's this. It's a very brief answer, so it's very inadequate. 
One answer is it is a place where it is where God provides for you solely and utterly and you live in his presence, rejoice in his truth, and have always know the great glory and mercy of our God. That is God's rest. And he calls all creation into it, and then it is lost just here. He's calling his people Israel into it, and then it is lost. And then the tabernacle is the sign that God is still working in his world and still wants to be with his people, which is why, secondly, we go on to build the tabernacle. You might remember from last week, what did we say the tabernacle was? Well, it's an unusual construction, isn't it? It's a big tent, very, very elaborate big tent, but it is a big tent consisting of several sections. It's a portable temple, if you will, where God himself will dwell amongst his people. But remember, it is a place that makes sure that you know you can't just walk in and walk out. It's not like the big tent you go to at the circus. You ever been to a big circus tent? Anyone, Christine, you've been to a big circus tent? When you get into the tent, do you immediately run into another tent wall? No. What do you do? What, what do you see? It's really big, isn't it? Have you ever been in the big? It's really big, the circus tent. It's open and everyone can go in. The tabernacle's not like that. It's actually a place that makes sure that it keeps you, as we said, safe. Only certain people can walk in and it is divided off into sections and only people can walk in at certain places at certain times. The Holy of Holies, of course, is the central place where God himself, his glory, resides. Leviticus chapter 16 tells us that only Aaron could go in once he had offered sacrifice for the sins of Israel and for himself. Sacrifices are a thing that represents that we understand that we know we are polluted by sin, that as we come to the presence of a holy God, the sacrifice reminded us that it died, this animal died in our place. His blood, its blood was shed, and it reminds us that God is holy and other. Sometimes in our world and in Christian studies, you might find that word used. God as holy other. My problem with that term, even though I've just used it, is that it seems to always put God at a distance. And what the New Testament wants you to know and what God even here in Exodus wants you to know is God is holy, but he is our God and he wants to be near and bring us near. How will he do this? God is not like us. Numbers 23, 19 to 20, one of my favourite little verses, God is not a man that he should lie, or a human that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak 
and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is truthful. He is not like us. God is reliable. He's not like us. God is holy. We are not like him. But the tabernacle is a great sign in the midst of them as they go. It's a great sign that God is determined to live with his people. And so he provides for his people and he gives them tasks and gifts, which our third point is God-given tasks and God-given gifts. Look with me to Exodus 35, verse 30 to 32. Moses said to the Israelites, see the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. People are given tasks by God, and the text makes you sure that you understand that it is God who provides those skills. The text also makes you sure that you know that these things were done according to God's pattern, according to God's plan. So often our artisticness means that I go off and do what I like, including in my sermons, which I always need to apologise for. But that's not here. Here, everything is done according to God's word and pattern. That's the plan, and the writer wants you to make sure you get that. And it's even in the giving of heavenly wisdom, heavenly wisdom, which is given to the skilled people. Now, I've left the reference off this. I noticed in my last, when I did this, but I think is, is it, can someone look up Exodus 36 for me? Verse 1. Does it say, so Bezalel? That's where I'm reading from. I got to it. It didn't have it. I put it in my notes. I wrote, I've copied and pasted the text. Assumed it was Exodus 36, verse 1. It is good. So Bezalel, Ohiolib, and I can't pronounce that name, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. So the writer, again, the, Moses wants you to understand the spirit of God provides the skills, the word of God directs how they use them. And, of course, nothing has changed. We today recognise the gifts and skills that God has provided people. Anyone in leadership in our church, in God's church, that's the same story. Leaders use their God-given gifts to do the things that God gives them to do. And we all do that under God's word and we are enabled by his spirit. Notice that's here, here totally. And these things are done with a willing heart, which is our fourth point from Exodus 35 verse 4. To 35. 
One thing has actually happened. Do you know translations? Uh, does anyone speak a second language here? Anyone? I wonder, what, what language do you speak? Sorry? Talk? Pigeon English? I speak in Pigeon English, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Viv says, use your words, and I don't know. So when I, if I was to speak and you were to say in Pigeon English to your audience who speaks Pigeon English, let's say that would be a thing, do you think you would be saying things word for word that I say? No. You would have to change it to make it sensible to the people who you're talking to. Because obviously when I speak, it's never sensible and you would make it sensible. You might need to come up the front right now. <laughs> the, all translations do that and the Bible is being in Hebrew and in Greek, the rot, they are translated and that means the people who translate it must make decisions on how they translate things. Some are more uh, literal than others this is a place where I think the writers of the NIV in your hand could have been more literal and have slightly obscured, obscured the willing heart aspect of this passage. I'm going to have to read it out for you. Uh, Exodus 35, if you're following along, in verse 5, it says, everyone who is willing, that actually says everyone who is willing of heart to bring to the Lord. Verse 10 Every wise-hearted among you, NIV, has all who are skilled among you. Verse 21, which is actually okay. Everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them, uh, him. Verse 22, all who were of a willing heart, yours just has willing. Verse 25, all the women that were wise-hearted, yours just has willing. Verse 26, and all the women whose heart stirred them up, yours in your hand says, willing. They've obscured the connection that binds all these things together by removing one word or breaking the word away from its other word. It should have been a willing heart. They've deleted the heart connection. And when we're talking heart, as I know you know, and you're going to have to hear me tell you again, the heart here is not this lovey-dovey feeling thing that we today think it is. If I say I speak from the heart, that may not mean what the Bible means. The Bible in the Old Testament means mind, soul, spirit, my entire emotional nature and understanding, all who I am and want to be, and aim to be, and do is piled into this. That's what it means to do it from the heart, because the heart is here, not just here. If you've got a scar here, which I do, it's always helpful, you know, where the heart is. Exodus' description of the people whom God has rescued out of the oppression of slavery in Egypt is a great one, but it's usually a negative one. It's a little bit odd for us to hear. It's actually quite positive. They're not 
described as being stiff-necked or grumbling or rebellious or disobedient or unappreciative. Here, they are described as people who operate with a willing heart. The heart falling into the right place is a great thing. Their willing heart, Joseph Benson said, who was a uh, Methodist preacher from some time ago, the willing heart is a principle of love to God and his service, a desire of his presence with them by his ordinances, gratitude for the great things he had done for them, and faith in his promises of what he would do further. These people give from their heart. They serve from their heart as God directs their worship. It's a great description, and we don't want to lose it here. God, by his spirit, has prompted and is acting in his people here. How we need that today. We may be tempted to look to just operate and be willing in the good times, but these have been hard times, haven't they? These have been unusual times. Something new has happened again in the death of Queen Elizabeth. We are in new times. Vivian noticed yesterday or the day before, she noted that none of the things that were said by people about Elizabeth that she saw had anything to do with the Lord. And yet if when Elizabeth spoke, when our Queen spoke, she often brought the Lord God into conversation. She she often spoke with God. We are in new days. Christians are people whose hearts need to be changed and we need to be people who are inspired, led and directed by the grace and mercy of God. We have turned from our sin. We have received forgiveness. We are being made into new creations. As we know, here God is in the midst of his people, but he has had to make sure that he keeps them safe and that they understand they can't be in his presence. We had noted that God doesn't dwell in temples or tabernacles anymore, but rather he has come to us in the person of Jesus. He's broken that holy divide because of Christ's righteousness and he's taken you and brought you into his presence. And more than that, he poured his spirit into you, that his spirit of love and mercy and grace, his presence, his glory is now in us and amongst us. We are people who need to operate with willing hearts. And we pray that as we have come to terms with what's happened and what has been happening, that we will have those hearts willingly serving each other and our God, because we are people who have the glory of the Lord, which is our fifth point, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. 
Exodus 40, 34 to 38, the glory of the Lord. We've received, reached the climax, haven't we, the end of Exodus. And I admit that it's hard to do justice to Exodus in four or five. We did five. Did we do five? Did anyone count? Whatever we did, we did the whole book in a short period of time. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 says this, The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and a fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all the travels. The goal has been reached. God was living in the midst of his people. He made it possible. He rescued them. He saved them from oppression and slavery. And now he's providing for them so that he could be with them. The glory of God, as we remember, was on the top of Mount Sinai and now it dwelt in the tabernacle in the portable Sinai. Part of the reason for this is that God was making sure he made known that he was in the midst of his people. It's why there's fire at night, so that they know he is there. The critique of the religions around them as you will find in Israel's history, as you keep reading in the Old Testament, is that people think mountains are special places. Here, it undermines that and says God is in our midst, not up on mountains. Abandon mountain worship because God is in our midst. But the problem of human sin is overcome. The tabernacle may be a portable Sinai, but the problem of sin still needs to be overcome. And as we know, that will be the story of the Old Testament. How will God, who wants to have his people with him, how will he keep them there and get them there? And boy, is it a struggle as you read. But eventually Isaiah will see and we just do this quickly, Isaiah will see an answer in Isaiah 40, verse 35. It's not the only verse. It's one. 40, 35, Isaiah, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It was the reason why Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. It's the reason why he said this temple that he was in and everyone admired, which also was thought where God would be. He dismissed it in one sense because the glory of the Lord had now been revealed in the person of himself. The glory was seen by that man in the temple we read in Luke 2, Simeon, didn't you? Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, You now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared inside of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The Lord was to solve the problem of getting us in, the fact that he is holy and we are not. He solved that problem ultimately in the person of his own son, Jesus. As you remember in Isaiah, Isaiah said, see, I do a new thing. Here is the new thing in the person of Jesus. Sin was dealt with, that distance from God, that otherness has now been overturned. Jesus provided the answer and his death has removed from us the penalty of death and sin. I said at the start, we don't like God's holiness. We are scared by it. Maybe in the church we won't say that to each other, but certainly outside people don't like God's holiness. And the truth is we're people of the culture and we're a bit scared of it too. But the wonderful thing of it is that God has taken us and made us holy in the person of Jesus. God in his mercy sent Jesus to make sure that we know forgiveness and mercy are ours, that it can be shouted from the rooftops, that it can be a light for people of all nations to come, and we have come. We beheld this glory, and God has called on us to respond. <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson put it this, we have entered eternal rest because in Christ, crucified and risen, we find eternal rest and are restored to communion with our God. The lost treasures of the Sabbath are restored, he says. We rest in Christ from our labour of self-sufficiency and we have access to the Father. As we meet with him, he shows us himself his ways, his world, his purposes, and his glory. Whatever was temporary about the Mosaic Sabbath has now been left behind in Jesus. What was temporary has now become permanent. The truth is Hebrews 4 verse 11 will tell us we struggle, we are encouraged to strive to still enter that rest. And our eternal rest will only be the time when God wraps all creation in himself and brings us into that eternal rest. Yet God in his initiative and love has made his home in us to make sure that we know that he is amongst us and in us and loves us. The weekly nature of the Sabbath is a reminder to us that we are not yet home with the Father, for where we will experience his love, his comfort, his provision, his rest eternally. We've come a long way. And in, as we do these things, people respond in all sorts of ways and craziness. But Exodus reminds us that God cannot be diminished. His love never ends. We are called to honour his majesty. We are called to honour his glory 
to recognize it and give our lives willingly and our hearts to him, all that we are and all that we do in love and praise and worship of him. That's what we have been asked and that's what we pray we'll do. Let's pray. Gracious Father and God, we, uh, we are people who are awestruck, awestruck by your majesty, awestruck by your grace and favour. Your holiness is, a, is incredible to us and we are in awe of your wonder. And yet, Lord, we are also called into your presence, brought in there by your grace and mercy in Christ. We rejoice. We love because you first loved us. We experience your glory because you revealed your glory to us in the person of Jesus. As John would say, we have seen the glory glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You've overcome the gap that exists between us. You've made for certain and for eternity that it does not exist because of your love, mercy and grace in, in Jesus. Father, we praise you. We worship you. We adore you and we pray that we would give our hearts willingly and openly to you and to your service and to each other. Please lead us by your spirit that we might know great love, great service and compassion and change us and mould us into the people you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.